Let's go Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Favorite line in that song we just sang, or JB just sang. Let this be the place where my kingdoms fall. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to build up kingdoms. Maybe I'm the only one. Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we will have the text up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. We, will, we also have some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room in the racks under the, underneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, don't have access to one outside of this place, man, let that be a gift from us to you. Uh, please take that home. Uh, whatever, whatever f- way you want to frame that, whether it's a, you see it as a gift or you just steal it, I don't care. All right? uh, because we value God's Word here. We do. Like, uh, we believe it has the ability to convict of sin and draw people to repentance. We believe it's effectual and does what God intends for it to do. We believe that it's the primary means that God has given us to teach us about Himself. And so uh, it's, it's advantageous for us for you to take it home and start reading it. So however you want to frame it, just take it and start reading, and we're okay with that, all right? All right, so if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible, all right? You'll be convicted of stealing later, but that's, that's how that works. You, you get them reading first, and then the conviction comes, all right? So Ephesians chapter 2, we are uh, pretty deep now into a series that we've been working through on Paul's letter to uh, the church at Ephesus. Uh, we have spent six weeks on it so far. Uh, we've obviously done a bunch of other stuff in there, but six weeks specifically on Ephesians over the last couple of months. And uh, we are now almost halfway through chapter two. Just flying along. But never fear. Never fear. We are going to look at one verse today and thereby be actually halfway through chapter two. So you're welcome. And then we're going to take three weeks off and do something else. <laughs> yeah, because we got some cool plans for the month of September. Uh, every fall, we want to uh, kind of pause what we're doing and spend a little bit of dedicated time looking at what we, what we call our mission statement, uh, the, the knowing God, loving one another, serving in the world, uh, that little three hexagon logo uh, that you've seen around. Uh, if you've been here for any length of time at all, that's a, those are phrases that you've come across, or at least we hope you've come across at some point. Uh, we want to spend some dedicated time each fall uh, kind of drilling down and talking about why these things are important to us and what kind of things they drive around here and those kinds of things. And so starting next week, we're going to spend three successive weeks uh, looking at our mission statement uh, so that we're all kind of on the same page. <laughs> all right. So, but today we're in Ephesians, right? Ephesians. If you're new here, Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the ancient city of Ephesus. Uh, uh, Ephesus uh, is in what would now be called Turkey. Uh, it's right on the western coast there. Uh, but during Paul's day, uh, they didn't move the town, uh, but during Paul's day, uh, it was a big, big deal. There's nothing but ruins today. Like if you wanted to get on an airplane and like go do the touristy thing, you could go visit the ruins of Ephesus today. The political climate in Turkey is not so great, but you can make it happen, right? If you, you know, keep your head about you, keep your head on a swivel, as they like to say in my part of the woods. All right. Um, but Ephesus during Paul's day was a massive deal. All right? A lot of scholars believe it was the fourth or fifth biggest city in the world at the time. It was a major influencer in the ancient world. Uh, it was a, a hub for political stuff. It was a hub for cultural stuff. It was a hub for economic stuff. It was a hub for religious stuff. And a big reason why was the Temple of Artemis. Uh, the Temple of Artemis is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Uh, and it's a massive deal. If you were a uh, well-off traveler in the first century... 
The temple of Artemis was on your bucket list. It was something that you had to make happen in your lifetime before you died. All right? And so whatever happened in the temple flowed out into the city. Whatever happened in the city uh, made its effects on the rest of Asia Minor. And whatever happened in Asia Minor went up the Silk Roads and across the Mediterranean. And so what happened in that temple was a massive influence on the rest of the world. And the Apostle Paul, the planter, the, the, the guy who started the church in Ephesus, Several years later, writes a letter back to them to encourage them, to correct some things, and to help them see what God has called them to do and to be. And so he opens up his letter in chapter 1. We, we spent a good bit of time talking about chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. He opens up this letter unpacking how big our God is and how big his plan is. That he is both eternal and eternally working. And in the culture that the church at Ephesus was called to preach the gospel into, that, that's something that was kind of an, an attractive contrast. It was something that was appealing to them because in their world, religion and politics didn't work like the God of the Bible worked. The religion that they were steeped in, surrounded by, was... A religion that was at best capricious, but most of the time just non-existent. So Paul writes them a letter to encourage them, to correct them, to give them a big view of who God is. And so that's what we've been focusing our study on. Last week we looked at the reality that, that, God, is, that, has, that God has not saved us for no purpose. It's probably a better way to say that, but that's the way I said it. God has saved us for an incredible purpose. The, that glorious purpose of bringing honor and glory to him and being reconciled to him. We said it this way, that the prize of the gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ himself. We can say that in the, in the negative way. Jesus is not the means to some greater treasure, right? You kidding? Like, we think that sometimes. We would never really say that out loud, that Jesus is just the way we get to some other valuable stuff. But a lot of times on a functional level, we, we fall into that rut, don't we? So we said last week that Jesus is not the means to some greater prize. He is the prize. Jesus doesn't play second fiddle to his stuff. This is what the Bible means when God calls himself the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation, right? The beginning and the end. Colossians says it this way, that everything flows from him and to him, right? He is before all and through all and in all. So y'all ready to finally be halfway through Ephesians 2? Verse 8. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I know you're going, yeah, we talked about this last week. Verse 10, 4, time out. We got one verse. Some of your translations may say because, right? So don't think cause here, think design. Paul's about to unpack for us that there is a natural byproduct that occurs when someone is brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's what we talked about the last couple of weeks in our Ephesians series, right? JB, several weeks ago, and then myself last week, we, we unfolded the reality that Ephesians 2 is basically a contrast of life versus death. 
that, that we are separated from God, that we are uh, uh, distant from Him, and that through the gospel, through the reconciliation provided by Jesus on the cross, we are brought back into right relationship. You think something happens when that right relationship is restored? The, the Bible teaches in Genesis 3 that when the fall occurs, that something is broken. What happens when that's restored? Paul's about to unfold for us that we're returning to our original design. So that original design has certain implications, doesn't it? Being rightly reconciled to the eternal creator brings with it being rightly freed up to live and walk as we've actually been created to all along. So what have we been created to walk in? Well, look at verse 10. For we are his, what's that word? Workmanship. The Greek word for workmanship there in the text is the word poema. Everybody say poema. Poema. There are a lot of people who think that poema of, over time eventually evolved into our English word for poem. Now, it's not 100% certain. There's even some debate over it. Uh, but it's not really hard to see why they land there. You take the I out, it's basically poem A for our Canadian friends. That joke didn't land. I'm sorry. <laughs> poem A. It's not hard to see why, right? Poema literally means workmanship. The, the, the translators of the ESV just nailed it on that one. Workmanship. Something made with the hands. That's poema. It can also mean something that is, that, is, that is a handiwork or crafted, right? Now, we live in a world where just about anything you buy nowadays has some kind of weird label on it that's, you know, it's got something that says artisan or crafted. But in a world where the definition of words actually matter, um, crafted is a special word, right? It's, it's not something that's mass produced. Crafted is something that's intentional. Crafted is something that, that has artistry behind it, right? Something is crafted is certainly not an accident. This can be true of physical objects. It can be true of non-physical objects like, like poetry, like words. Like, I can craft words, right? So that kind of adds some weight to the morphed into poetry argument, doesn't it? Poema is a special word in the Bible. God says that we are God's workmanship, the intentional crafting of his hands. Notice, though, that it doesn't say that we are our own workmanship. We're not building something of ourselves here, right? We're his workmanship. This is not about making ourselves who it is that we feel like we ought to be or would finally feel special being. No, this is about design. We have been crafted by the good creator. The Creator dictates terms here, doesn't He? There are two places in the Bible that the word poema is used. Here and in Romans chapter 1. Hold your finger in Ephesians and flip over to Romans 1 real quick. 
Romans 1. Just going to look at one verse. So technically we're looking at two verses of Scripture today. Romans 1, verse 20. For His, God's, for His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Okay, so there's a ton of stuff going on in Romans chapter 1, and Paul's main emphasis there is to, to unpack the necessity for the gospel. Uh, and so there's, there's, we don't have enough hours in the day to really dedicate uh, time to a sidestep to Romans 1, but if I could give you the short version of what Paul's saying, it's this, that every speck of creation and the glory that you see in it is made for the ultimate purpose of pointing back to the far larger and more eternal glory of God. Paul's point in Romans 1 is to say that to see creation correctly is to go, wow, and immediately turn around and go, wow, to God. That the correct response to being awestruck by the creation around us is to give glory and worship to the one who made it. That word made, poema. Poema exists for a glorious, glorious purpose. What was made is intended to point back to him. So back to Ephesians. Back to Ephesians. Paul says that being reconciled back to the glory of God, being reconciled back in relationship with him, brings with it a deeper return to being a reflection of his glory. So how do we show off his glory? Let's keep reading verse 10. For we are his workmanship, comma, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. So look right at me, church. God has not saved you, reconciled you, for you and I to rest in our reconciliation. He has not brought you back to himself so that we would just sit there and revel in the fact that we're sitting at his feet. He says that you and I have been created for good works. But didn't we make a big point last week about how even faith itself is not actually works? So why are we making a big deal out of works today? Because the order of how these things roll out is immensely important. So we've said through the first nine verses of Ephesians chapter 2 that A, I contribute absolutely nothing to my reconciliation with God. And that B, to take a step further, I contribute absolutely nothing to maintaining my reconciliation with God. I neither established it nor hold it in my hand. But that doesn't mean I don't contribute anything to the fruit of my reconciliation with God. He has reconciled us in order to be a reconciler. So what are the good works that we have got to do? 
Well, what's our one job, right? We've said it in here before. What's the one job? To make disciples of all nations, right? We've said it before. We'll continue to say it until we no longer have breath to say it. The one job of every follower of Jesus is to make disciples of every other place. That's the command given to us in Matthew 28, right? Make disciples of all nations. That's the one job of every follower of Jesus. Now, there are really cool things that, that prop up that command, and there are really cool things that flow out of that command, but that's the hub, right? That's what we've been called back to him for. That's the job. To be reconciled automatically makes us a reconciler, at least by title. We may not be a very good job living up to that title, but that's the title we have. The entire point of poema in Romans 1 is to point people back to the good creator. The entire point of poema in Ephesians 2 is to point people back to the good creator. That's what poema does. It's a reflection. So we're about to spend the next three weeks unpacking our mission statement, the, the knowing God, loving one another, serving in the world thing. It's a mission statement, but I mean, I'll just put my cards on the table. All that is, is an attempt to flesh out on a practical level this job. It's not a growth strategy. It's not a way of streamlining our organization. It's a nuts and bolts kind of way of being poema. Of being a reflection of his glory. Of being reconciled who reconciled. That's all it is. And so what you're going to hear trumpeted for three weeks in a row is, we do this because of this. We do this because of that. It's about being effectual poema and furthering the reflection of his glory. Look at verse 10 again. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. At the end of the day, God continues to show his bigness to the Ephesian church and to us by pointing out over and over and over again ad nauseum, it seems, in the letter to the Ephesians. That God's not making this up as he goes along. He's not just going to see what happens here, right? Paul just said that we have been brought back into right relationship with him, that we have been restored to walk as we've been created to walk, and this is actually all a part of his plan that has existed from before the foundation of the world. He's not making this up as he goes, but actually this plan predates you and I. We're operating on an eternal scale here. And in his goodness, in his goodness, he has set out a plan for you and I to make much of him. Those of you who know your Bibles well, you know that Acts 17, Paul's standing in the Arabicus and he tells the, the, the Greek men there that, he is, that God has determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of your dwelling place. In Genesis 12, God tells Abram that he has called Abram out and blessed him so that Abram will turn around and be a blessing to others. 
God's not rolling the dice on how all of this is going to play out. Are you kidding me? Let's see how this works. God's plan has a definite beginning. God's plan has a definite ending. And you and I, in his graciousness, are caught up in the middle of all of it. Maybe you balk at that idea. I would gently ask, who's the star of your story? Jimmy sang a song a while ago talking about laying our kingdoms down. Oh, let me be crucified here. Let me die to myself here. If you're wrestling with, like, being caught up in a far larger plan than you, of being a bit player in a story that's not about you, the question I would ask is, who's the star of your story? Because the second I realize that I'm not the star of this story, this all falls into place. In fact, not only does it fall into place in, in a sensical way, uh, in, a, in a logical way, but this actually falls into place in a relieving kind of way. Because if I'm a part player, if I'm walking as I've only been designed, created to walk, it's actually kind of freeing. God has promised that he's going to reconcile all things to himself. All things. Is he dependent on me to pull that off? If so, we're in trouble. Right? And listen, we'll press. If he is dependent upon me, he should have never made that promise. Right? How dare he make a promise he can't deliver on? We're talking about character of God issues here. Either God's got all of this in his hands, or he's rolling the dice here. Thankfully, our God's bigger than that, isn't he? Our God is far bigger than that. He can't make a promise if any of this is on me. Because God is the one doing the calling, because God is the one doing the equipping, and because God is the one bringing the fruit when he deems fit, the burden to pull all of this off is no longer a burden. I'm simply walking as I've been created to walk. Correct theology always produces freedom. Always. Correct theology always produces freedom. And so when you, when you come into a church environment and you hear do, 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 don't mishear me, there are times to do, but burden level pushing, you've missed the mark at a core level. Freedom level draw is where do is found. Correct theology always produces freedom. Jesus himself said, My burden, or my yoke, my teachings are easy and my burden is light. It's when we add or subtract to the gospel that we make this incredibly complicated and we feel the weight of this. 
correct theology always produces freedom. But God's plan before, from before the foundation of the world is that you and I would be reconciled to him and show off his glory as we are invited into reconciling others. To be brought from death to life is to return to what we've been designed all along to walk in. And when that happens, our one job to do is no longer a burden. When that happens, our one job to do is simultaneously the place where our greatest rest is found. We walk. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so our responses to, to evangelism and missions or uh, service-oriented stuff like disaster relief, that's not a, that's not a go-do because you have to earn God's favor. That's a go-do because we have been set free to walk. We are reconciled to be reconcilers. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, you walk, right? You press into the God who loves you, who has saved you, and who is daily making you out to be a deeper and deeper, truer and truer reflection of his glory. you're a follower of Jesus, you press into the God who says, come to me and I will give you rest. You want some practical action? Maybe this is it. Maybe you've got something in your heart and life that distracts from that glory. Maybe that needs to be removed today. Maybe you live your life with the title of reconciler but haven't put any feet to it. Maybe that's your action today. If you're a follower of Jesus, you press into the God who loves you and sets you free. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. I hope you hear that from me every week. hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. Maybe today's the day where you will finally come to him as Lord. Maybe today's the day you'll finally be reconciled. Repent of sin and come to him as Lord this morning. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. It'll be a chance for all of us to respond, to put action to the things that God's calling us to do in his word. And listen, we're going to have some people down here to talk, if that's good for you, if that's going to be helpful for you. Our God's big, and our God's good, and you don't need me to know what you ought to do. You know. So let's get moving. Father God, you're good to us. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Thank you for being a God who sets men free. God, we want so desperately for, for the gospel to be declared here because we want so desperately for your glory to be seen here. God, would you draw people to yourself this morning? Would you reconcile in this room even today? For those of us who know you and walk with you, would you call us deeper into yourself? 
so that others will see you and be reconciled as well. God, your design is brilliant. Our sin has broken, but you are the great restorer. And you take what was broken and you mend it forever. Far better than it ever was even before. So let this church and let my own heart be a true reflection of your good glory. Where there are distractions, remove them. Where there are roadblocks to others seeing it, help me tear them down. And in all things, would you make your name famous? In your name we pray.